All right, so last week, <clears throat> we were short on time. This morning, we are ahead. I have five extra minutes to preach this morning. How awesome is that? I just want to, um, I want to just say that, uh, so you know how every year it kind of rolls around and it's open enrollment for insurance, okay? You know how that happens? So... I would just say, and I know I'm going to take some liberties here, Amy. I think right now is probably like open enrollment for choirs, so you can jump in. It's a great time. Easter's over, Christmas hasn't started, and uh, and they're rolling. All right, that that train is moving, and so I know some of you. Okay, I'm I'm not going to look directly at you. I'm just going to do just looks. But you have some great voices, and Amy would love to have you, and the choir would love to have you singing with them. So it's a great time to jump in. All right, if you've got your Bibles, Revelation chapter 7 is uh, actually chapter 6, 7, and beginning of chapter 8 is where we're at. If you want to grab your little blue Bible in the pew back, if you didn't bring yours, and that's okay, page 870. That's where we're at. So I want to kind of refresh us a little bit. Think about where we're at, okay? Think about the purpose of the book of Revelation. Um, and... For some of you, this is, this is frustrating because some of you are detail people. You, you are down in the weeds and you want to be down. You want me to talk. And listen, first, it's just not my nature. Second, um, even if it was, I'm not going to do it in Revelation, okay? For all the obvious reasons. I think there is enough to keep us busy at the 10,000 foot level. Okay, to be to see the general movement and flow of the book and to be encouraged by that. There's enough going on there to keep us plenty busy and uh, to not bore anybody. So this morning we're entering that section of Revelation that it's it's a long stretch. We're going to get seven seals. We're going to get seven trumpets. We're going to get, you know, seven bowls. This is where this is where. Revelation commentaries make their money, all right? And so what I want us to do this morning is start getting that big picture. And and so I want to start by kind of reminding you, you know, I brought Dr. Johnson here um, because, first, I know him. Um, I had studied with him at Westminster Seminary. I knew his general take on the book of Revelation. That's kind of the direction that I'm coming from. And here's what I want to tell you. If that doesn't match up with where you're at with the book, it's okay, because like I said, we're going to stay at that level where I think, I hope, there will be some encouraging stuff here for you, and um, and it's not going to frustrate you too much. There's room, what I'm trying to say, for you to have your view, and and maybe my, me to have mine, and those two coexist, okay, um, because of the kind of the level that we're going to stay at. So, <clears throat> this morning, beginning in... Chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. Let's read it together. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come! I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And then another horse came out, a fiery red one. 
Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come! I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. And then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. And when the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard a voice from the fourth living creature saying, Come. And I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. And they were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword and famine and plague and by the wild beasts of the earth. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to the earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and the very mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? If you fast forward a chapter to chapter 8. Begin in verse 1. And then I saw, oh, and when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand. And then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Let's pray. Father, thanks. You're good to us. We would thank you for your word this morning. We need your help, your aid, as we uh, seek to understand it, know what's in it, so I pray our meditations on it and my words concerning it will be acceptable in your sight for your glory. Amen. So I've already told you, I'm following Dr. Johnson pretty close here, another guy named Vern Poitras and uh, Michael Gorman and then just uh, uh, a few other folks here and there scattered about. But I want you to think with me just a little bit about the structure, where we've been and kind of where we're going. It'll help you as you think about uh, getting a handle on these uh, these seals, okay? So, the first chapter in the book of Revelation, you recall, showed us Jesus 
right, amongst his churches. So we had that picture of Jesus moving in and among the lampstands. And we said that was a picture for us of Jesus moving amongst his churches. And then in chapters 2 and 3, we got that picture of the seven churches. We got Jesus addressing the seven churches of Asia Minor. So he's talking to them and he's telling these churches, right, who they are. He knows them intimately. He's, he's very familiar with what's going on in their midst. And so he gives them, most of them, a critique and he challenges them. And so one of the things we said there was that those seven churches are both real churches, all right, and they're also emblematic of the church because there were seven. And remember that number of seven refers to completion in the, in the book, perfection. And so we have the seven churches, which are both real churches with real problems and real issues. And at the same time, they're churches that re- represent us. They, they represent all of the churches down through the era. So we could say they represent the church, or if you want to use a the Apostles' Creed language, the lowercase Catholic Church, Catholicity being the unity of the church. And so they represent all of those churches. So Jesus addresses, addresses them in chapters 2 and 3. Then the vision shifts for us. In chapters 4 and 5, John gets ushered into the throne room. And so he sees, remember, the lamb and the four living creatures, and he sees the angelic host. He he sees all of these things happening. But the center of the picture is the lamb. The lamb who was slain and yet is powerful. And so, remember, we talked about how that was kind of the picture of, you know, wow, what you expect to see when you think of power is a devouring lion, but instead what we get is a, is a slain lamb. And so that's indicative of the church's mission. The church's mission isn't to go out and knock heads. The church's mission isn't to go out and, and you know, pound the gospel down the throats of people and, you know, believe Jesus, you know, love Jesus like I'm loving you. That's not what we do. We actually go out into the world like the lamb went out of the world and we love, right? We we love our neighbor. We, we love those people around us in our sphere. And Jesus says they will know us by that kind of love. It's self-sacrificial and all those things. Um, and so that's what we get in chapters 4 and 5. We got the picture of the throne room. And, and you're drawn into the majestic nature of that throne room, that slain lamb of the worship that is happening there. And and it makes you think, it makes me think, he's in control. I mean, he he's got this, right? And then we come out of that, and in chapters six, seven, and eight, we get the seven seals. So get the get the image as we work to the seven seals. At the end of chapter five, remember God the Father is holding the scroll written on both sides because it's the complete picture. It's the complete story. It's a complete accounting of God's plan. And so God the Father is holding in his right hand the scroll. And remember, John weeps because who can open it? Who's the, 
Who is there that's worthy to break those seals? And we talked about the importance of the seals. You, you didn't mess with the king's seal in those days. If you were transporting a document from one person to the other and it had a, and it had a, a seal on it, and you it, that seal was broken in your transport of it, you may as well go ahead and cash in your life insurance policy because you're a dead man, right? And so John is apoplectic. Who can open the scroll and break the seals? And no one was found. And then the Lamb comes forward. And so what we have in chapter 6 is the Lamb breaking the seals. Now, here's one of the key ingredients in thinking about these seals, okay? And that is, each seal that's broken isn't the complete story. It's a part of the story. Okay, so each one of these things that it's happening, I mean, normally what happens is you break one seal, you open the document, and then the contents are released. In this instance, the breaking of the seals are leading us up to, okay, the overall big picture. And what is the overall big picture? Here it is. And from Dr. Johnson's viewpoint, and, and, and I like it, it makes sense, might not make sense to you, and that's okay, but this is a vantage point, and that is, that as we work through these this series of sevens, okay, is we're seeing, as he described it, the same situation from different vantage points. He called them camera angles. It's like a movie, right? So you're, the movie rolls through this way, and we're seeing it from this camera angle. And then after we're done with the seals, we're going to move, and, and we're going to have bowls, and it's going to be from a, a different angle, okay? And so that's... His description, and, and I like it. It makes sense to me as I, at a 10,000-foot level, work my way through this. And so think about that. Because what is happening in this section is God's judgment. Right? So as those seals are being broken, we are seeing that picture. God's plan begins to unfold in this passage. And so as he breaks the first four seals, what happens? Well, the horses and their riders are are acknowledged, okay? Now, when those first four seals are broken, the living creatures each announce a loud come. So we have four seals broken, four living creatures, the four living creatures that were described for us back in chapter 4, which Marion no doubt covered. And so we have those four living creatures that are making the announcement, Come. Now think, okay, because this is where you, when you start reading through this, like, oh, I got a pale horse and a red horse and a black horse. It's terrible sounding, right? I mean, it's like, oh my goodness. But as a part of the plan, this is God's judgment. This is His undoing of the world, okay? This isn't some rogue renegade. This is God who is in control. And so what we have and those first four seals go rather quickly, or we have the, the horses that are riding, and they have riders. Now, the colors are important. The colors probably refer back to Zechariah. There are four horses that are named there as well. They don't exactly line up, but they're fairly close. And they are riding, right? So we have the white horse, the red horse, the black horse, and the pale horse corresponding to, and they tell us, roughly symbolizing, conquest, War, famine, and death. Beautiful images, right? 
That's what makes them so terrifying because you read them and you you think, oh my goodness. But remember, this is the unfolding nature of God's plan. It is His judgments that are riding. This isn't the evil one. This this is this is God. He is the one that is sending these things. And and um, and it's important to kind of think about you know, okay, so what does that mean? Someone uh, used this illustration. I think it's really helpful. So in World War II, okay, um, the German the, the German army, the Nazis, began kind of marching all over Europe. They take over France in 1940. And for the next four years, they occupy France. Now, was that ter- terrible? If you lived in France, yeah, it was bad. But once the occupation army sets in, France stabilizes. And so for those four years, there was a certain degree of just kind of normalcy in France and stability, even though they're occupied, right? And we're not talking about the resistance or anything like that. We're just talking about general, ordinary, everyday living. You went down to the store every morning. You had your cappuccino. You got your bread. You got some salami. You went back to the house. You had your meal for the day. You took your little afternoon nap. You farmed. You did Whatever it was you did in life, you did it under the occupation of the Nazis. You with me? Now, that was life. Was it perfect? No. Was it ideal? No. But... It was what it was. Come, uh, what, June 6th, is that right? Somebody correct me. 1944, we land at Normandy. So now you have the bad guys controlling France. You have the good guys landing on the beaches. If you lived in France following June 6th, what was life like? Bad. Right? Okay, hold on a second. But these are the good guys landing on the beaches, assaulting the army, taking the fight to the Germans. But things were kind of okay. Um, but now they're in shambles, right? And so there are armies marching and, 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 and the landscape is torn up and things are really bad. You can think about it in a sense like that, right? As, as God unleashes his judgment, he does so on a world that is somewhat unsuspecting, okay? And he comes, as the, as the riders ride, these, they are bringing his judgments. And what are they? Well, yeah, we just named them. Conquest, war, famine, death, all of the elements that would just cause us, our stomachs to turn. Um, it, it's desolation. It's, it's bad stuff. Okay, it's bad stuff, but the ultimate end of it is good stuff, right? Just exactly the way our conquest of the Nazi army in France, was it ultimately good? Are y'all tracking? We're, we're not very far into a 45-minute sermon. Y'all are asleep already. Yes, it was good. It, it was difficult, but in the end, it was good. Okay, and so that's kind of where we're at at this point as they ride, as those seals are broken, as they go out into the world, as as they bring God's judgment upon the land. It's difficult. 
And, and who, who specifically are we talking about? Well, we're talking about, and we, and we will see that, you know, kind of the underbelly, if you will, of the evil that has stood in opposition to the church, because that's who he comes to judge. Now, how do we know that? Well, we know that because the fifth seal gives us the rationale for the judgments. Look in verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Okay, so the saints under the altar, now that's, okay, an image that's that's giving you this picture. These are the men and women who are in Christ. They are His. That's why they're under the altar. That, that's the place of sacrifice. And, and so they are bound in Christ. They are His. And they're under the altar showing their identity and their identification with it. And they are crying out to God, God, how long before you avenge our blood? We died for the Lamb. When are you going to take care of those who've been in opposition to us? And because they were in opposition to them, they were in opposition to Christ. When will you come and avenge us? That is their question. And so um, they've been martyred for the sake of God's word and their testimony about Jesus. And so they're crying out for justice. How long? And they have to wait until the final judgment. But so they're waiting in anticipation of the final judgment. But before that time, God has heard their voice and he is moving. And it is, it's, it's his awakening that, and his writing, his judgment that rattles the landscape, that makes living difficult. Because were he not to come, were he not to ride, were he not to, to move, Against the opposition forces, things would just stay as the status quo, if you will. Are you with me? Kind of a low, low level pain. Instead, what we have is complete upheaval. Now think of the early church. Think of the early church. Think of those seven churches in Asia Minor, Minor beginning to hear this story in the, you know, late first century. What are they thinking? They have the perfect picture. They have Rome. They have the barbarian hordes. They have all sorts of images in which they can begin to, to, God is moving. He's moving even now in their midst. But he's been moving down through the ages as well and will continue to move. But as he does, it makes things difficult. Here's the challenge. The challenges and the mistake that's easy for us to make is that we mistake God moving for evil moving. Are you with me? We mistake those two because we don't 
necessarily have that heavenly vision that John is getting, and so we don't totally, completely grasp and understand. That's the most difficult and challenging part of God's plan. What we ask, the kind of the natural question is, why doesn't God just gather us up and then crush everyone else? And the answer, of course, is he's not done. He's not done gathering to himself his own. And so he is working and he is using all of these events. He is using these riders and everything that they represent to dislodge and to bring to himself his own. And at the same time, to be a forecast of the coming judgment of those who live in opposition to him. That's one of the great truths, actually, of the church. It's this. That the church, when it's pressured down through the ages, you know what it does? It grows. When pestilence and famine and death and war are the order of the day for the church, God moves significantly. Go to China. Go to China today. The China church today, underground, driven underground by communism in that country, dwarfs the church here. We don't even hold a candle to what they're doing underground in China. A number of years ago, uh, 19, it was 1999, uh, early 2000, um, there was an earthquake in Turkey. Um, it was called the Izmit earthquake. It was right there, just not very far from the Bosphorus Strait, um, just to the east of Istanbul. If you look at a map, there's there's kind of a little uh, little strip of land that runs there, and then you can go down the coast. And that earthquake hit right there in Izmit. <clears throat> we sent a couple of, I was in Montgomery at a church there. We sent a couple of doctors over. They went uh, late fall, and they did some work there. They came back, and um, and then we sent a team with a guy from Texas, a big Texan named Hal Metis, wore this big hat. He was with the oil industry. And Hal greased a bunch of palms in Turkey and had a bunch of free uh, prefab housing shipped into this area. And so we went, we went over, met up with a local church with a uh, mission to the world, and went up to the Black Sea and built these houses. But I will never forget landing in Istanbul, getting on the bus, and we're riding the bus to go to this little town in the Black Sea. And what, what do you see as you drive that drive? First, collapsed houses everywhere. 17,000 people died initially in that earthquake. 500,000 people were displaced and were homeless. And we're on the drive, and one of the images will ever be in my mind is the image of the white tents with red crosses as far as you, you could not see the end of the rows of the tents that people were living in just outside of Izmit. And those red crosses emblazoned on them. Now, I know... Okay, American Red Cross doesn't equal Christianity, but it was a picture of when there's disaster, when there's trouble. And it has always been this way. The church rushes in. They go places and, and, and aid people in great difficulty when lots of folks just are taking care of themselves. <clears throat> there, there are stories that are counted in early, uh, it, is the church was early in its infancy 
um, the plague hit the Roman Empire. And the reports are nearly a third of the Roman Empire was wiped out. But in that happening, Christians stayed put. They were caring for their neighbors in the midst of you know, They're dying. But they stayed when everybody else was fleeing. The early Christian church stayed. And it was their witness that was written about later. Okay, Many of them lost their lives to the plague. But it was their witness, their caring for their neighbors, that helped transform the church from this budding little group into this manifold witness of people with a testimony. Much the same way. So that is what happens when the, when the church is pressured, it grows. When it, when it's driven underground, it grows. When there's famine and pestilence and war, the church, right? Because suddenly you're faced with ultimate questions. Who am I? Why am I here? If I lose my life because a bomb falls on my house, does it matter? If all I am is a, is a bunch of atoms thrown together and none of this amounts to anything, what difference does it make if I'm here or if I'm obliterated into a million pieces? You see, you start asking ultimate questions, big questions, when people are dropping bombs and shooting and, and there's pestilence and you're, you're starving to death and you have no food on the table, all of those kinds of questions. Why not just lay down and die? Because it matters, Right? Because there's a theology behind who we are and why we're living and why we do what we do. And so it's, it's all of these pressures that bring that to bear. But we don't see that. We think to ourselves, right, despotic dictators, bad. What if God has them there in order to grow his church? Are you with me? Do you see the challenge? Now, here's the challenge theologically for us. Because what we're seeing is those seals are broken and the riders are riding is that God is in charge of what? He's in charge of horses that are white, red, black, and pale, conquest, war, famine, death. God, God is in charge of that. Now, you are going to have to do something theologically with that versus a God who sits back and is letting things happen. Let history ride itself out. Is he in charge? Is he sovereign over these judgments? Because they sure look painful and evil. Or is he just allowing them to happen? Are you with me? Yes. How about that? So I was reminded recently by another pastor of a speech, which I'd heard before but had forgotten about. How I don't know, but it was de- it was delivered in the uh, Mississippi State Legislature in 1952 by a judge whose name <clears throat> was Noah Soggy Sweat. Soggy Sweat, and he was he was given this speech on whiskey. Okay, so they were debating in the Mississippi Legislature. Um, the uh, uh, the future of whiskey in Mississippi. They probably all had a flask on them when they were talking about it. But anyways, and here's his short speech, which illustrates a little bit maybe perhaps where we're at. He said, my friend, I had not intended to discuss this controversial subject at this particular time. However, 
I want you to know that I do not shun controversy. On the contrary, I will take a stand on any... You want me to read this like a southern judge? No, I'm not. Regardless of how fraught with controversy it might be, you have asked me how I feel about whiskey. All right? This is how I feel about whiskey. If when you say whiskey, you mean the devil's brew, the poison scourge, the bloody monster that defiles innocence, dethrones reason, destroys the home, creates misery and poverty, yea, literally takes the bread from the mouths of little children. If you mean the evil drink that topples the Christian man and woman from the pinnacle of righteous, gracious living into the bottomless pit of degradation and despair and shame and helplessness and hopelessness, then certainly I am against it. But if when you say whiskey, you mean the oil of conversation, the philosophic wine, the ale that is consumed when good fellows get together that puts a song in their hearts and laughter on their lips and the warm glow of contentment in their eyes, if you mean Christmas cheer, if you mean the stimulating drink that puts the spring in the old man's step on a frosty, crispy morning, if you mean the drink which enables a man to magnify his joy and his happiness and to forget, if only for a little while, life's great tragedies and headaches and sorrows, if you mean that drink, the sale of which pours into our treasuries untold millions of dollars, which are used to provide tender care for our crippled children, our blind, our deaf, our dumb, our pitiful, aged, and infirm, to build highways and hospitals and schools, then certainly I am for it. (laughs) This is my stand. I will not retreat from it. I will not compromise. (laughs) I don't want to be soggy sweat. But you know what? The Bible, when talking about God's sovereignty and man's free will, allows and gives us a picture that both are happening. How is that possible? I don't understand. I don't understand how it is that God allows us the freedom to follow our own fallen hearts, okay? I don't understand how he allows that to happen. And then at the same time, we read things like Joseph to his brothers in Genesis chapter 50, right? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Or Romans eight twenty eight, right? That God works all things together for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. How is that possible? How is he both sovereign over it and yet not the author of sin? That is one of the great questions that we would, we will have to wait to understand. But scripture gives us both of those to hold on to. Man is yet responsible and God is yet sovereign. And so when you're here and you're in Revelation 6 and you're in Revelation 7, you sense it and you feel it and you understand, right? Those horses are riding, and they are bringing death and destruction and pestilence, and God is sovereign over it, and yet there are despotic rulers that are ruling by their own. There are pharaohs. There are, you know, uh, Julius Caesars. There are Nero's. All of those leaders. Is God sovereign over them? Yes. Is he using them for his purposes? That's exactly what, what Moses said of Pharaoh. And yet... How those two come together, I don't know. So here we are. The sixth seal now is opened. And the sixth seal is a picture of judgment, 
of great judgment, right? Beginning in verse 12, I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black. I mean, this is standard boilerplate language for apocalypse in the, in the sense that we use it, right? Um, uh, the, both slave and free hid in caves. There's, there's a, uh, in verse 15, the kings, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, slave and free. So in, in the sixth seal, what we're getting is, it doesn't make any difference if you're, you know, if you're living in the Taj Mahal or you're living in a shack. If you are living in opposition to the king, the ground is leveled, literally, right? Because where are they? They're in caves, hiding, begging that the rocks will fall upon them. Now, this isn't the final judgment, but it is a picture of what is coming, okay? And so that great day of wrath, they are saying, has come. It's forward-looking. So this is one of those aspects in which, right, we have a a forward-looking picture of what is coming. It's it's being tasted in part with the riders and their horses, but this is kind of that final picture. Verse 17, I want you to notice. For the great day of their wrath has come. They ask, who can withstand it? Who can withstand it? That is really the question. The answer, you have to turn to chapter 7. Chapter 7, we get the first appearing of the 144,000. Now, however you want to see those 144,000, right? The numerous 144,000 that God has marked out, seen first as uh, um, a picture of the 12 tribes. There's a lot of issues, though, with the 12 tribes. So, um, But they're seen first as kind of that, uh, that remnant, if you will, that is coming from the 12 tribes. But there's a problem with them being both a literal 144,000 and being from the 12 tribes. There are a number of issues, I think, with that. It's okay if you don't agree, but I'm going to give you one of them, uh, um, and I'm going to quote Kevin DeYoung here. The 144,000 mentioned later in chapter four, four, 14, we see them several more times, are those who have been redeemed from the earth and those who were purchased from among men. This generic everybody kind of language, he says, this is generic everybody kind of language. 144,000 is a symbolic number of redeemed drawn from all peoples, not simply the Jews. Besides, if the number is not symbolic, then what do we do with Revelation 14:4, which describes the 144,000 as those who have not defiled themselves with women? Are we to think that the 144,000 refers to a chosen group of celibate Jewish men? It makes more sense to realize that they are a symbolic number that is described as celibate men to highlight the group's moral purity and set-apartness for spiritual battle. So in chapter 6, I mean in chapter 7, right, we get just a little bit further. So we get the introduction of the 144,000. If you're feeling like we're getting that, that detail level that you don't want to be at, just hang with me for a minute, okay? But once you get past the description of the 144,000 from the different tribes, look at verse 9. After this, John says, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one can count. That's the same number. 
That's the same group. And who were they? They were from every nation, tribe, people to describe this way later in the book as well, and language. And they're standing in front of the throne, in front of the Lamb, and they were wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hands because they're worshiping the Lamb. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, does it make any difference, really, if this point in, in some sense about who you think they are. They are the answer to the end of chapter 6. Who can stand? Okay? So the horses have ridden, the judgment is coming, and the question that those who are being judged ask is this. Who can stand? And what is the answer? Those who are in the Lamb. Because that's what chapter 7 gives us. It gives us a picture of those whom the land has purchased. He has given them the white robes. They stand before the throne. They're from every nation, every tribe, every tongue. They are the redeemed. And they're there before the Lamb. And so who can stand? Those who know the Lamb. Those are the ones that stand. Anyway, anyhow you want to end up slicing it, they are the ones who were there before the throne and they can stand because of the work that the Lamb has done. Remember. Remember what Dr. Johnson talked about. And you know, this is the theme. The theme through the book of Revelation is not how terrible things are going to be. The theme at the book, at the center of the book of Revelation is the triumph of the Lamb. He wins. Are you in Him? Right? Are you connected to that lamb? Did the lamb lay down his life for you? Have you, you know, that's the question. And so here at the end, we move then to chapter 8, the opening of the seventh uh, seal. And there's silence in heaven for a half hour. We're finishing right here. We're at the end. And uh, he sees the seven angels. They stand before God. Seven trumpets given to them. Another angel has a golden censer. He came. He stood at the altar. Now, who's who is at the altar? What's going on at the altar? Do you remember? Fifth seal. Who's under the altar? Okay, the martyrs, those who have given their lives for the lamb are under the altar. And so in this picture, the seventh seal, the angel comes, he has a golden censer. Okay, this is representative of the prayers of the saints. He comes to the altar. He's given much incense to offer. What? With the prayers of God's people. Okay, so this angel is coming. He's, he has the incense. It's full. He's got a lot of incense. Because why? It's been a long time. The martyrs are there. They're under the throne. They're crying out to the Lord. And this angel hears their cry on the golden altar in front of the throne. Verse 4, the smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from the angel's hand. And then the angel took the censer. And what does he do? He filled it with fire from the altar. He hurls it to the earth, and there became peals and thunders and rumblings and flashes and lightnings and an earthquake. So coming all the way together at the end is the cry of God's people, How long, O Lord, and his final coming judgment. Pictured for us by the angel going to the altar with incense And then from the altar, flinging coals on the earth. What a picture, right? 
of God finally answering the call of the martyrs who have given their all for him in final judgment on the earth. Now here, what are you going to... I would say the last two images that are encouraging and should be encouraging to you are these. First, you get a picture of God's people sealed, right? And we get that back in the, in the, uh, the, um, in the middle of chapter seven, okay? Because those people receive the sign of God upon them. So you've heard a lot about the other sign, right? 666 on your forehead and your wrist and all this stuff. All right. Well, guess what sign comes first? That's the sign of God upon his own. He has marked them out. And so he does that in chapter 7. And so here, at the very end, it is that seal. It is being sealed in Christ that is the greatest hope to us. And then it is God's people secured. Listen. If this view is where you're at, okay? And the despotic rulers and the pain and the war and the rumors of war that have been going on down through the ages, if all of that is a part of God's plan and his judgment, and if you get real jittery when you see North Koreans launching nuclear-tipped missiles that, that no doubt in the very near future will be able to reach our country. And, and you think about the Russians with, you know, nukes piled high and all of that. If all of that stresses you, or perhaps, right, disease and the struggle of, you know, in the infirmed body or, a, or a, a battle that you have with whatever. If all of that gets you down, Revelation is here to pick you up. Remember, John wrote this. Why? To encourage the church. So don't let it mystify it. Let it encourage you. And how does it encourage us here? Because the message is this. Through all of that, horses riding, bows and arrows and wars and rumors of wars and all of that stuff that's happening. The, the, the sky being rolled back as a dark scroll and, and all of these images. Through all of that, what does he say? One. I hear your prayers. Two, I'm coming for you, and I will seal you in Christ. And on that day, you will wear a white robe. And at the very end of the book, you're going to inhabit the new heavens and the new earth, and you will rule and reign, just as Adam and Eve were designed to do it in the original garden. It's a picture come full circle by the time we get to the end. And I don't know where your hope lies today, but I tell you, Right? It's kind of like every day living the gospel, knowing, okay, I'm his, I belong to him, I can bear this, I can bear that. The big picture is exactly the same. You can bear whatever is coming, whatever is coming, however you want to view the end, you can only bear it if you belong to him. Let's pray. Father, you're good to us. We would thank you this morning. Difficult as this passage is, Father, um, we, we're doing our best to understand your word. And, Father, I think what we're seeing most clearly this morning is that you have a plan for your people. And we need to hear that. We need to know that. We need to rest in that. We need to be secure in that. No matter what happens in this world, you own it. And we're thankful for that. We pray, Father, give us that great hope in Christ Jesus. Amen.
Let's stand as we sing uh, hymn six.